that's how we can conclude that consumers that systematically search out and consume organic fruits and vegetables will eliminate 95, 98% of the dietary risk that they would uh, consume otherwise. You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gravey. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gravey, and I am the host of the show, and I'm glad you joined us. Today, we have Dr. Charles Benbrook. He is the executive director of the Heartland Health Research Alliance and is leading the management team carrying out the Heartland study. This long-term clinical study is assessing the impact of herbicide exposure across the Midwest on birth outcomes, the health of pregnant women, and children's development. Benbrook has also served for four years as an expert witness for plaintiffs in Roundup non-Hodgkin's lymphoma litigation. Chuck has published several scientific papers on pesticide use, risk, and regulation. He has a PhD in agricultural economics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and an undergraduate degree from Harvard University. Today, we're going to be speaking with him about a new study just recently published in the peer-reviewed journal Agronomy, which is entitled... Organic Farming Lessons Reliance on Pesticides and Promotes Public Health by Lowering Dietary Risks. Dr. Benbrook, welcome to Food Integrity Now. Well, thank you. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show today. And I saw your recent study published in the peer-reviewed journal, Agronomy, which reported significant impacts of organic farming systems on pesticide use and the risks stemming from pesticide residue in food. And I thought this study was terrific and, and much needed. And I wanted to have you on the show today so that you could kind of explain it in a little more of layman's terms to, you know, what you really found. And you were the co-author of this study along with Susan Kegley. She's a principal scientist and CEO, Pesticide Research Institute, along with Brian Baker, Affiliate Faculty, Crop and Soil Science Department and Environmental Science Graduate Program, Oregon State University. Let's just get started. So what was the main reason you did this study? And I know you compared organic farming versus conventional farming and data was produced on organic and non-organic farms on all crops and selected horticulture crops. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Sure. Um, the journal Agronomy uh, decided to put together a special issue on the impacts of uh, organic farming on a number of aspects of uh, agricultural systems, the soil, water quality, food safety, the climate, um, and they felt they needed a uh, up-to-date, data-rich assessment of how 
organic farming impacts pesticide use and dietary risks. And they, they asked uh, me to uh, produce such a paper. And I was lucky to recruit two colleagues that I've conducted research with and written papers with over the years, Susan Kegley and Brian Baker. And we uh, um, buckled down and it's a, it's a very meaty paper. It's uh, 36 or 38 pages and uh, lots of tables and lots of data. So for people that really wanna know to what degree does organic farming reduce pesticide use and dietary risks, um, the answers are in the paper. That's fantastic. So uh, Dr. Benbrook, can I call you Chuck? Yes, certainly. Okay, okay. Chuck, in the report, it was fascinating. It says that if only 1.2% of US cropland growing vegetables and fruits were to transition to organic, then something like 90% of the pesticide exposure would be eliminated from our diet? Okay, so uh, this, this is one of our key findings that has gotten a lot of attention because you know people people don't understand how could it be that just the small part of the cropland base in America that grows our fruits and vegetables how could that be accounting for such a large share of dietary uh, risk from pesticides? Well, the again the 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 paper has the 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 answers and and here's why um, fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, often are sprayed fairly late in the growing season to protect them from fungal pathogens or insects. And because they're sprayed late in the season, um, they're often um, contaminated with pesticide residues that, that last until the, the consumer um, uh, eats the fruit and vegetables. If you look at the official uh, US Department of Agricultural agriculture data on pesticide residues in food put out in a program called the Pesticide Data Program or PDP. And I'll use that acronym, I'm sure, uh, more than once in, in our discussion. The PDP data show that most of the pesticide residues in the food supply are in fruits and vegetables and other products made from fruits and vegetables, such as uh, tomato paste and ketchup and grape juice and orange juice and applesauce. Uh, there, there are actually very few residues in animal products. And there are some residues in certain grains, uh, but not, not anywhere near as frequently as the residues in fruits and vegetables. Most consumers don't know that based on the most recent year of testing, the average fresh apple selected in a supermarket around the United States in 2019 had four different pesticides on it. And some apples would have 10 or more. Um, and I think the record is one sample of sweet bell peppers had 14 different uh, pesticides on it. So their pesticide residues in fresh fruits and vegetables are ubiquitous. The average American, unless they're buying organic, uh, is going to ingest six to 10 residues per day, mostly from their fruits and vegetables. And so this is why the relatively small acreage of fruits and vegetables grown in the United States, it's about 4 million acres, 
account for such a high percentage of the overall risk from pesticides in the diet. Um, American farmers harvest crops off of about 330 million acres a year, mm -hmm. and fruits and vegetables only uh, account for about 4 million acres or about 1.2%. You know, wow. Well, back to uh, what you were saying about the amount of pesticides on fruits and vegetables. Uh, I think I saw it was the uh, Pesticide Action Network. They, they identified 52 different pesticides that can be sprayed on apples. So that's, you know, that's pretty, pretty crazy amount there. And I know, I think it was Michelle Obama that was promoting um, apples in the school system. And I thought, well, that would be great as long as they were organic. So what you're saying makes so much sense. But, but I do have a question around that uh, 1.2%. So does that include commodity crops like wheat and corn and soy? No? Okay, so that does not include that. And the reason I asked that is because uh, I've been studying glyphosate, and I think the number is that there's something like 300 million pounds of glyphosate sprayed in the U.S. alone, and a large percentage of that, 280 million pounds, is sprayed on agriculture. So I was just curious if the study included that. Well, let, let's let's talk about glyphosate. This is the herbicide active ingredient in the in the well-known herbicide Roundup. Right. This is the herbicide uh, that is associated with genetically engineered corn, soybeans, cotton, alfalfa, and a few other crops. And it is by far the most heavily used pesticide in the United States and worldwide in history. And not only is it the most widely used pesticide ever, it probably exceeds the use of the previously most widely used pesticide by over threefold. So the, the magnitude, the volume of glyphosate use around the world is absolutely unprecedented in the history of pest management and in the history of the pesticide um, um, manufacturing uh, sector. Um, glyphosate is a contact herbicide that will kill almost anything that is green and actively growing. And uh, that's why until GMO crops came along, the use of glyphosate was relatively limited. A farmer could only apply it on his, his or her field before the planted crop came up or after the crop was harvested, because if the farmer sprayed glyphosate on the crop, they'd kill the weeds, but they'd also kill the crop. So glyphosate, it, the, the major uses of glyphosate around the world are soybeans and corn. Uh, there's substantial use on cotton around the world and, and then some of the other major uh, grain crops. But none of, none of the grains uh, are genetically engineered to tolerate glyphosate. So the only reason glyphosate is showing up in, in Cheerios and oat bars and other grain-based products is that Monsanto 
convinced the EPA around year 2000 to increase the allowed levels of glyphosate in wheats, oats, barley, edible beans, so that farmers could spray glyphosate on their crops late in the season to kill the mother plants so that the crops would dry down because farmers have to wait until their grain or their beans um, are uh, dry enough to put into the bin uh, in order to um, not have them uh, mold or spoil uh, during storage. So glyphosate doesn't show up much in food uh, because of the way it's used. It does show up in wheats, oats, and barley. And that's why EWG and, and other uh, NGOs that have tested food for glyphosate, that's why it's being found in 95% of Americans on a daily basis. It's, it's not from it's not from the uses on soybeans and corn. Uh, it's mostly these pre-harvest uh, uh, crop desiccation uses that, that are the reason it's showing up in the food supply. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And Tom Vilsack now uh, is really acting like he's paying attention to regenerative organic farming. Do you see any hope for this kind of turning around here with the current administration or what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, I, I hate to say uh, I, I don't, I, I'm not that hopeful. Uh, the early actions of the Biden EPA and the USDA have, have not really um, displayed the same kind of commitment and determination to bring about uh, important and fundamental changes uh, as the administration has done in the, in the case of our climate change, some of these infrastructure issues. Um, you know, I, I, I'm really concerned that there just isn't that fire in the belly of the Biden administration that's going to be required to, to combat the enormous political clout of agribusiness, of the pesticide industry, the biotech industry, the food industry. Um, and, and at the end of the day, um, it, the last several administrations have, have not had much of an, uh, of an agenda in food and agriculture and have really left the agencies largely on their own. And that has um, transferred significant uh, power to the Congress and the Congress is where the, the companies and the commodity groups and, and the trade association lobbyists have the strongest foothold and control over policy. So I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately not um, terribly confident that we're going to see the, the kind of sea change that so many of us feel is long overdue. Yeah. So let's go back to the study, because I think studies like this, we have a better chance of educating people about the advantage of organic farming and eating organic than we do the administration's changing and of the, any of their policies. So tell us a little bit more about the study and what were some of your conclusions and how, how did you uh, derive these conclusions? Sure. I published my first peer-reviewed paper 20 years ago comparing 
pesticide residues at risk in conventional food, organic food, and, and food grown with integrated pest management. And in this last 20 years, I've published three or four additional papers. So this, this paper is by far the most uh, data rich and sophisticated in terms of the methodologies that underlie the risk estimates. Um, you know, it, you know, I'm contributing to what science does. Science gradually improves, uh, digs deeper, accesses better data and sharpens the accuracy of the uh, empirical findings that are, that are reported. So I, um, Susan and Brian and I, in this piece of work, we developed the first ever method to use this, the incredibly rich pesticide use record data set from California, which is a, it, it's a complex field level accounting of all pesticides applied in the entire state of California. That's mandatory. It's a government requirement. So this massive data set, which goes down to individual fields, um, we figured out a way to use that data <clears throat> to compare pesticide use on a organic field of carrots or an organic grape vineyard or an or organic field of tomatoes to conventional grapes, conventional carrots, conventional tomatoes, right nearby and often within a quarter of a mile. So we knew that the organic field and the conventional field, it was the same year, it was the same weather, it was the same pests in the area. Often it's the same variety because Growers are using the most well-adapted varieties. So this provided us with by far the richest data set that's accessible anywhere in the world to make such an empirical comparison. So one part of the paper documents the total pesticide use on the organic fields of carrots and the nearby conventional field of carrots. And we did that for five or six different pairs. And then we averaged the differences. And in the tables covering the differences in pesticide use, as, as you would expect, the differences are enormous because yes. conventional farmers mostly rely on pesticides to control pests and organic farmers mostly rely on management and biodiversity to manage pests. So in the first part of the paper, we used the, the California per data to make these detailed comparisons for herbicides to control weeds, insecticides to control insects, fungicides to control plant diseases, and, and overall pesticide use. And then in the second part of the, the, the paper, we calculated both the environmental risks and the pesticide dietary risks that were associated with the pesticides used on these organic and conventional tomato, carrot, and grape fields. And we also uh, calculated the average dietary risks for other major foods in the diet where USDA reports residues on 
organic foods, organic samples versus the same crop, but conventionally grown. So we had this rich data and we ran that through uh, the Heartland Health Research Alliance is the organization I work for through their, our dietary risk index system, which translates a given residue level, let's say of bifenthrin in apples. Let's say there's one part per million of bifenthrin in apples. That doesn't mean a lot to the, the general consumer. So we have constructed a, a, a analytical system that uses EPA chronic toxicity data along with the, the residue levels reported in food to calculate risk numbers using the same methodology that EPA uses. And so we can compare the residues, all of the residues found in, in conventional apples, say in 2019, as reported by USDA, with all of the residues found in organic apples as reported by USDA. And we, in fact, apples in 2019 is one of the tables in the, in the paper. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but the difference between the, the aggregate dietary risk from pesticides in organic apples compared to conventional apples is two, three, 400 fold. It's massive, it's massive. Yes. Now that's, it's not that big in some other crops, but it's usually almost always tenfold difference. And it's this big difference between both the number, the number of pesticide residues in conventional crops versus organic crops, the levels of the residues are typically way higher in the conventional crops compared to the organic crops, and the average toxicity of the pesticides found in conventional food exceed by several orders of magnitude the average toxicity of the pesticides found in organic. So when you take all of those factors together, which, which we do through this dietary risk index system, that's how we can conclude that consumers that systematically search out and consume organic fruits and vegetables will eliminate 95, 98% of the dietary risk that they would uh, consume otherwise. Wow, that's just phenomenal. So I know that uh, a question that some of our listeners might be wondering right now is, uh, can you just say what fruits and vegetables had the highest amount? Um, just give us a few examples. Sure. In, in, you know, in the supermarket today in America, uh, uh, some leafy greens are often in the top five, uh, fresh spinach, fresh kale. Uh, unfortunately, the superfood that's so nutrient dense, um, it, it tends the, the last few years of testing, there have been a, 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 an unusual and worrisome number of pesticides in, in spinach and kale. Um, apples are always somewhere in the top 10. Uh, grapes are usually somewhere in the top 10. Uh, sweet bell peppers are very vulnerable to a whole range of, of insects. Uh, some of the berries, uh, strawberries, raspberries, blueberries are often somewhere in the, in the top 10. So the, basically consumers, if they just understand a few simple rules of thumb, they can um, reliably pick the foods that it's most important for them 
to, to seek out organic and particularly uh, families that are feeding young children. Uh, they ought, they, they ought, you know, so fresh leafy greens are really important to try to find organic brands. Um, soft skinned fruit, peaches, nectarines, um, cherries, uh, uh, any sort of uh, fruit that doesn't have a thick skin or a peel or a shell tends to have uh, more frequently pesticide residues that could pose some, uh, some risk. Um, and uh, the, the fruits and vegetables that tend not to have pesticides very often are things like uh, pineapples or melons, uh, things that have a thick skin or, or a shell. Avocado, Avocado exactly. And also things that are grown in the ground, like onions and carrots. Um, even if an onion or carrot farmer sprayed an insecticide on top of a, a carrot or an or a onion field, the, the spray itself isn't gonna get on the, the carrot or the onion or the turnip or the squash because it's down in the ground. However, those root crops, if there, if there are residues from past pesticide use in the soil, then those root crops tend to pick that up. So my, my advice to families is to take the time to, to learn about the, the typical residue and risk profile of the two or three fruits and vegetables that your family eats the most and likes the most. Because you know, most families, 80% uh, of the fruits and vegetables that they eat are three or four different ones. So you know, maybe it's green beans, maybe it's artichokes, but whatever it is, that's where a, a mom ought to uh, spend a little extra time learning about uh, residues of risk. And if it happens to be uh, uh, pineapple, there, there's not a lot to worry about, or, or mangoes, or, or um, uh, watermelon, or cantaloupe. Those crops don't typically tend to have that many residues. But if their kids like spinach, or they, they like peppers, or green beans, green beans is another one that's almost always uh, up high in the list. Those are the foods that families ought to go out of their way to try to purchase fresh organic or frozen organic. One of the things people need to, uh, to remember is that there's really high quality and affordable frozen organic fruits and vegetables available at Costco, Walmart, uh, uh, Safeway, all of the major supermarkets now year round have good supplies of frozen organic fruits and vegetables. And these are delicious. They're, they're, often, uh, they're often almost as tasty as, as fresh and uh, they have a, a very desirable nutritional profile and they'll have almost uh, uh, no pesticide uh, dietary risk associated with them. So it's not always the right move to, to go, to drive over all over LA in, in November or, or February, trying to find organic uh, berries, uh, fresh organic berries, because there'll be plenty of frozen organic berries uh, available at any supermarket. Yeah, that's, that's good advice. Well, I'm a proponent of mostly organic. 
for a couple of reasons. Number one, because of the um, lack of pesticides that I'm in my, um, what I consume, but also I, as a consumer, want to buy organics because I want to support those farms that are growing organic. And um, I think as we do that as consumers, and we buy less of the conventionally grown food, the prices are coming down, you know, so uh, so I feel like it's a good thing. But I, I agree with what you said, because especially for people who maybe are eating very little organics, to take a look at and do just do a little research, they can look at your paper, they can get information other places, and just learn about you know, what they're eating already, if it's conventional and see where they are. Because as we know, it's never been as important as it is right now to have a healthy immune system. So yeah. we want to eliminate as many as possible and many toxins in our body. Well, well, listen, since, you know, we're talking about our paper and, and, you know, our, the paper we just published, it focuses on pesticide use and then dietary risks. And, and how organic farming substantially reduces the dietary risks associated with, in particular, fruits and vegetables. But let's remember, you know, we've got thousands of farm workers out in the field right now in California, harvesting fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, and, and millions of people in the Western US that live within a couple of miles of intensively farmed areas and, and many people that live 50 feet from an intensively farmed field. And when, when people in California, Arizona, New Mexico, Oregon, Washington, Montana, Utah, when they live near one of these intensively farmed conventional farms, they are going to be exposed several times in the year to the pesticides that are, that are, that are sprayed within a, a, a mile or two of where they live. And if they happen to live right up next to a field, they may be very heavily exposed. They may get a larger exposure episode from one spray that where they happen to be outside and the wind is blowing in the wrong direction, then they'll get all year from the diet. And it's, it's those exposure episodes that science is now showing is leading to uh, people getting sick, uh, people uh, having reproductive problems, uh, women giving birth to children who have serious developmental disabilities, autism, ADHD, um, uh, farmers and farm workers that, that get uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or other cancers uh, after 10 or 20 or 30 years working in the field. Uh, there, there is just a mountain of new science coming out all over the world that shows that people who are occupationally exposed to pesticides because they work on farms, they work in factories manufacturing the pesticides, they work in fields that have been recently sprayed, or they, they're landscapers, or they work for Chemlon and are spraying people's lawns. These are the people in our country that are at by far the greatest risk because five days a week, sometimes for 10, 20 years, they're being exposed to, to these uh, pesticides. And there, there is 
absolutely no way that anybody with a straight face can say that all pesticides are being used safely in America today. Yeah, that, just that 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 is a not true. And anyone uh, who tries to convince the general public that there's nothing to all this concern about pest. I mean, it's it's ignorant and damaging. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, what I've been noticing, you know, back to glyphosate for a few minutes, you know, as I go to my Home Depot or Lowe's and I walk down the aisles and I, I you know, I see the Roundup everywhere. But I'm also seeing a lot of uh, products like Spectracide, which uh, the active ingredient in that is dicamba, which we know that the dicamba has the drift factor. Uh, I forget how many feet, but it's significant. So uh, what you're saying is, is so true about living near those areas and um, how the workers and people who li live in those communities can be being harmed greatly. Yeah, so let me explain why four years ago, uh, I and a small number of people decided to start something that we call now the Heartland Study, which is, the Heartland Study is the flagship project that's being managed by the Heartland Health Research Alliance, for which I serve as the executive director. I follow every year when the USDA puts out the new uh, pesticide use data, I pay particular attention to the Corn Belt. Uh, where the majority of the nation's corn and soybeans are grown. Corn and soybeans are the backbone of the US food system. Uh, corn and soybeans account for over half of the total harvested acres of all crops in the country. And nowhere in the, in the world is there a more intensive concentration of corn and soybeans in a large area. I mean, just picture the 13 Midwestern states that's a, that's a big area, something like 60% of the surface area of those 13 states is corn and soybeans. So obviously any major changes in how pesticides are used on corn and soybeans in the Midwest has significant potential to impact farmers and applicators, uh, impact water quality, kill fish, get in people's groundwater, and cause uh, other problems, both environmental problems, worker problems, and problems for the general public. So when I, when I saw the impact of the spread of glyphosate resistant weeds, which started happening about 2007, 2008 in the Midwest, when I saw that starting, I knew that farmers were going to have to add additional herbicides to their spray program, that they would have to spray at higher rates, and that they sometimes would have to spray twice when usually just one application would work or three times when generally two would work. And as you know, I, it didn't take any kind of special knowledge or uh, a rocket science degree to predict that herbicide use was going to go up in the Midwest starting around 2010 because farmers would have to keep up with these resistant weeds. It's exactly what's, what's happened. And so we started working in about 2015 on a major new birth cohort study uh, based in hospitals in the Midwest uh, 
to test in real time whether a pregnant woman's exposures to herbicides during her pregnancy were was contributing to a higher frequency or severity of adverse birth outcomes, uh, giving birth to a child with a birth defect, uh, giving birth preterm or to a low weight uh, infant, um, giving birth to a, a child that develops ADHD or autism or learning disabilities or behavioral problems. So we, we designed a study, uh, put together the scientific team to carry it out and, and the, the Heartland study has been underway. We got going right before COVID hit, enrolling mother-infant pairs into our scientific protocol. And then basically all clinical studies at hospitals across the country were uh, put on hold while the hospitals dealt with COVID. And it's only just in the last couple months that hospitals are opening back up to um, uh, standard uh, clinical studies based on um, on birth cohorts, pregnant women and their, their newborns. So we started this study because we knew that, that use of uh, several herbicides were going to go up, including 2,4-D and dicamba, which are probable human carcinogens proven to cause reproductive problems and proven to cause certain birth defects. And so we felt it really important for the general public, the public health community, regulators, farmers, even the pesticide industry to know whether this historic increase in 2,4-D and dicamba use that's been happening in the last five years in the Midwest is increasing the frequency or severity of adverse birth outcomes. And so we, you know, if we're able to continue to grow the study, we're, we're trying to raise all the money from private sources. There's been no government money invested in our project to date. We think we can have some solid answers in just two or three years. And this would, this would be far faster than typical because most of the time it takes 10 or 20 years for science to catch up with the public health problems that are left in the wake of the use of a pesticide. So we're, we're hopeful we can do it. We're actually hoping we don't find any linkages, any associations, uh, uh, but we're fearful that we may. And, and if we do, it's going to be very important for people to recognize the significance of the fact that herbicides being used across 13 Midwestern states where 150 million people live uh, is a serious problem because it, it will likely shave a few to maybe 5% of IQ off of the next generation of newborns. I mean, that is the, the impact on our national economy of the loss of even 1% of IQ in a generation. It's billions of dollars. Um, so, we're, we're, we're going to do, you know, we have to do the science. It has to be highly credible. We have to use the, the best, most modern methods to link the herbicide use and exposures to adverse outcomes, because we know that the pesticide industry isn't gonna accept our findings laying down. They have 
a fine-tuned machine to attack any science that doesn't support their view of science. Right now, in the world of pesticides and pest management, the pesticide industry calls the shots on what is sound science. And even publications like the New York Times take their word for it. So if, if, if we're going to break the lock of the industry on pesticide use and regulation and risks, we have to uh, challenge the fact that only the pesticide industry and its science and its scientists know what they're talking about. Yeah. Because they, they, know what they're, they know what to say to protect and expand the use of their products, but they really don't pay that much attention to public health. Right. Well, thank you for that. And uh, we really look forward to when that study is completed and uh, sharing your information. But that sounds really exciting and well needed. So uh, thank you for being a guest on our show today and for sharing your most recent study. I will put a link to the study on the show page and thank you for your passion and all, all your hard work. And this certainly confirms what some of us already knew, but many do not. But having the science to back it up is key and, and that's what you're doing. So where can people find out more about you and your work? You want to give us a website and I'll also sure. put it on the show page, but let our listeners sure. know. Sure, please put up the uh, website for the Heartland Health Research Alliance, mm -hmm. www.hh-ra.org. Um, and um, uh, there's lots of information. And I, I want to make clear, we're, we'll be putting out multiple papers we have another major paper coming out in early August. The, 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 the Heartland study, it will be a long-term birth cohort study. I suspect it'll go on for 10, 15 years. Wow. And, and so over this period of time, we'll produce a series of papers that just like peeling an onion, each paper will delve a little closer to the core, the real truth of how changes in herbicide use in the Midwest are impacting uh, public health today, as well as future generations. Okay, thank you so much. We really appreciate all your hard work. And thank you to our listeners, and we'll be back soon with another great show.